Fantastic. Well, good morning and welcome to today's session on dispensers for safe water experiments. Uh, my name is Tony and I'm happy to be the uh, MC for today's session. So there's a lot of data and evidence and research in the development space. There's been this recent surge in interest around randomized controlled trials and obviously the Nobel Prize that was awarded in 2019 to professors Kramer, Banerjee and Duflo. And development economics more generally has been really an interesting area in the past decade. However, there is an open question. How can all of this data and evidence and research actually lead to changes, changes in people's lives on the ground? And today's panel will serve as a fantastic opportunity to look at exactly how that can be done. It is a wonderful example of how researchers, practitioners, and donors all play an independently important but complementary role in translating evidence into real on-the-ground impact. So today we're going to be looking at the problem of contaminated water. Contaminated water is a major cause of diarrhea and a leading cause of death among children aged five years and younger. It is estimated that 1.2 million people each year uh, have attributable deaths due to unsafe water, and almost 2 billion people currently lack access to safely managed drinking water. Now, of those 2 billion, the vast majority of them live in lower middle-income countries and rural and remote communities, which means it's compounded by the fact that there's a lack of access to high-quality public health care. So, as we think about this problem space, it clearly appears to be important. In terms of tractability, there are solutions to this problem. There is water chlorination, which is both inexpensive and has been widely used in other contexts, which then raises the question of the relative neglectedness of this problem area, particularly given its potential impact. Prior to 2020, there was little evidence around chlorination's effect on actually reducing child mortality directly. However, thanks to a recent meta-analysis from Professor Kramer and partners, we now have new evidence that suggests that chlorination actually has a greater effect on reducing child mortality than thought of before. Dispensers for Safe Water, which is a program run by Evidence Action, installs, maintains, and promotes the use of chlorine dispensers in rural and remote water collection sites around the world. And thanks to the new evidence that was generated, this led to GiveWell updating their cost-effectiveness analysis and has led to the belief that this space was actually more neglected than prior thought, particularly given the relative importance. So consequently, earlier this month, GiveWell recommended a grant to dispensers for safe water of over $64 million over seven years. So, to help discuss in more detail the role that evidence has in driving impact and the virtuous feedback loop that it can create, I'm really excited to hear from the three panelists that we have today. So firstly, we'll hear from Arthur Baker. Arthur is the Chief of Staff at the Development Innovation Lab at University of Chicago, where he supports Professor Kramer on research and policy. Recently, he's been involved in research on market design for COVID-19 response and pandemic preparedness more generally, as well as the research on water treatment. 
After Arthur, we'll hear from Marinella Capriati. Marinella is a program officer at GiveWell. She focuses at researching new interventions for potential funding. And she's led the GiveWell research and investigation of dispensers for safe water. And then finally, we'll hear from Brett Sedgwick. Brett is Evidence Action Senior Director for Programs, where he leads global strategy and support to the Dispensers for Safe Water program, as well as the Deworm the World initiative. He also acts uh, in leading Evidence Action's monitoring, learning, and evaluation strategy team. So with that, I'll hand it to Arthur. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Um, so I'm just going to briefly summarise this meta-analysis, um, which is work by um, economists Michael Kramer, Ricardo Martins, Brendan Tan, um, Professor of Medicine um, Stephen Luby, and biostatistician Vitol Vjecek. Um, so I'm not an author, but I've been working quite a lot on this, so I think I, I know it quite well. So first, I, Tony said a little bit about why the meta-analysis was needed, and I'll explain a bit more. Um, so randomised control trials are typically designed to measure impacts on diarrhoea rather than mortality. Um, and that's because, happily, child mortality is quite a rare outcome. So you need a very large sample to measure effects on child mortality. You know, often a single study will only have a handful of child deaths. So it's hard to see if a difference between treatment and control is really due to water treatment or is just um, due to chance. Um, so because of this, um, water treatment has often been excluded or deprioritized in the lists of the most cost-effective health interventions that are kept by multilateral organizations like the WHO and the World Bank. And these are the lists which they recommend governments and donors really prioritize for health spending. Um, so that means that health funds are typically not used to um, deliver water treatment at scale. So, hence the meta-analysis. Um, so the authors um, collected mortality data from uh, 15 different studies. So, this slide shows the kind of search process that they went through to identify these 15 different studies. Um, so they were looking for studies in low and middle income countries that were randomized control trials um, that included children under five. Um, and that, uh, yeah. And so eventually you get this um, sample of 15 studies, 12 on chlorination, um, two on filtration, and one on spring protection. So one thing to note here, you know, this isn't just a meta-analysis about dispensers for safe water or about um, chlorination even. This is about water treatment in general. Um, so by combining these studies, the authors are able to get a much larger sample. Um, the total sample was um, 25,000 children, and that enables them to, defect, to detect impacts on mortality. Um, so the, you know, the headline number is an overall estimate of a 30% reduction in the odds of all-cause child mortality from water treatment. Um, so that's all-cause mortality, not just uh, mortality from diarrhea. Um, that's obviously a huge result. Um, there's, a, there's, a, you know, there's a reasonably wide confidence interval here, or I should say credibility interval, because this is a Bayesian um, model. There is also a frequentist model in the paper, um, which has very similar results. Um, but yeah, the credibility interval goes from 8% um, to 51%. But really, anywhere in that interval is a huge effect. And you can see, by the way, here, graphically, the problem with looking at each individual study. You can see the confidence intervals here are wide. You know, they go over one. You really have to combine all of the studies. Um, and let me also just draw your attention to this subgroup estimate, just for chlorination. 
um, which is quantitatively similar. Um, so, what about cost effectiveness? Um, water treatment is quite cheap. So what we do is we combine this estimate um, with cost data from two interventions. So one is dispensers for safe water, which these guys will talk about more, and the other is a coupon program. Um, so a coupon program, I'll explain a little bit more about in a second. Um, and what we find, what the, the finding is um, the cost is about $3,000 um, per child death averted, or about $40 per DALI, per extra healthy life year. So to put that in context a little bit, I mentioned these lists of the most cost-effective child health programs. Um, they often have a kind of category that goes from $10 to $100 per healthy life year. And that includes things like you know, malaria treatment, um, ORS, oral rehydration solution for, um, to treat diarrhea, things like antenatal care, um, childhood, routine childhood vaccination. Um, so something like $40 per, per life year really puts water treatment or would put water treatment among the most cost-effective health interventions. You know, even if it was double, even if it was $80, it would still be in that kind of bracket. Um, <coughs> so those two things that I mentioned are not the only interventions, you know, not the only d delivery mechanisms available. Um, dispensers for safe water, you know, I won't go into too much detail, but it has the advantage that it's tried and tested, that it's, you know, it's being delivered at scale, it's kind of ready to go. Uh, the coupon program that I mentioned, um, so the basic idea would be um, parents of young children, when they come to routine clinic visits, they get given a coupon or a voucher, um, which they can redeem for um, a bottle of water treatment um, at, at local shops or perhaps local clinics. Um, and this has been evaluated in two randomized control trials in, in Kenya and in Malawi. Um, and you know, one advantage of this is it can kind of piggyback on existing systems, so you don't need to um, build new physical infrastructure, you kind of work through existing government health systems, so it can perhaps scale, um, you know, uh, more easily. There's also inline chlorination, um, you know, which, which um, can be used where many people share a pipe, you can get a little, a, a little mechanism that goes inside the pipe and that automatically treats water as it comes out. Uh, the benefit of that is that it can, um, you know, anybody who uses that pipe gets treated water. So, you know, and those are just the chlorination um, interventions. As I mentioned, there are other interventions as well. So, as well as having a really high um, cost effectiveness ratio, and as well as having, you know, multiple delivery mechanisms that are, you know, maybe appropriate in different areas, I want to mention the kind of absolute magnitude of this potential solution. So, just to give you a kind of rough sense, we did a back-of-the-envelope calculation that suggests that global delivery of water treatment through a coupon program would save approximately 370,000 child lives annually at an annual cost of just over $1 billion. And so, is that a big number? Um, it's a pretty big number. Um, just to put that in context, the reduction in annual malaria deaths from 2000 to 2020 is a little bit less than that. It's kind of quantitatively similar. So, and I think a lot of people consider that reduction in malaria deaths to be one of the great successes of global health. Um, so, you know, I think that is a really, really important, really large possible um, magnitude of benefits. Of course, you know, it's not precise. You could, you could look at the uh, credibility interval and, you know, get a range, but really anywhere within that is, is huge. So to just, just to summarize, the meta-analysis suggests that water treatment is one of the most cost-effective um, cost solutions out there. I think 
GiveWell putting its money behind it should kind of add some confidence for you in that. Um, but the magnitude of the task is absolutely huge. You know, as Tony mentioned, you know, more than two billion people lack access to safely managed water. Um, so I think that leaves a major opportunity for, um, for, for, for researchers, for donors, for effective altruists, um, you know, both in terms of donations, in terms of funding, in terms of conducting more research. Um, you know, there's a big job to do. Uh, so with that, I'll pass over. Thank you. So thank you so much to uh, Tony and Arthur for the introductions and a bit of an explanation uh, about how um, Arthur's team put together the evidence to come um, to a meta-analysis estimating the effect of uh, water treatment on uh, child mortality. Um, so what I'm going to do is to talk a little bit about how GiveWell used that information to come up with the grant that we made to dispensers for safe water but also use that as a case study to tell you a little bit more about um, our process and how it has uh, evolved in the last few years. Here we go. Okay, so um, when people think about GiveWell, really often what they think about is uh, top charities, which are the charities that are most prominently featured on our website. Um, but really, a lot of our work really focuses on um, finding new donation opportunities. So I am myself part of a team of about 15 people that work exactly on that. And uh, um, what we do is effectively, we have a pipeline and uh, um, we start by looking at a very large number of programs. So at the moment, we are looking at about 350 programs or more. Um, and those are the programs that are kind of uh, on our radar. We're actively researching about 60 of these uh, programs and we expect to make grants to about 20 of them. And so you can see that this is like quite a steep funnel. So how do things go, or fall off, go through or fall off the funnel? So there are mainly three reasons for uh, programs to fall off this uh, funnel. Um, the first one is uh, lack of evidence. Uh, the second one is uh, low room for more funding, which basically means that we think that the program is unlikely to absorb a large amount of resources. That could be, for instance, if it's uh, solving a problem that only affects a small number of people. And the third one is cost effectiveness. And the, the way we think about cost effectiveness is that we use um, cash transfers as a benchmark, uh, and then we have a, effectively a threshold um, and above that threshold, we'll make a grant and below that threshold we won't. That threshold changes, but at the moment is uh, six times as cost-effective as uh, cash transfers. So anything that is more cost-effective than that uh, would be something that we, we fund. So for a long time and until not that long ago, Dispenser for Safe Water had been deprioritized on the basis of uh, this third criterion. So we didn't judge it to be cost-effective enough for us to make uh, a grant to it. Um, what changed? 
So to begin with, um, a kind of like a framing uh, point, uh, I'm gonna focus on the effect that water treatment has on underside mortality. Uh, we estimate that there are also other benefits to water treatment, but this is uh, kind of like the largest one. Um, and so I'm gonna focus on that. So we initially estimated that water treatment had an effect um, of about 3%, so a 3% reduction on uh, child mortality. Um, and that was basically calculated in a two steps. So we would have, we had direct evidence of the effect that water treatment had on uh, um, diarrhea prevalence. And then we extrapolated from that um, the effect it had on child mortality on the basis of uh, evidence on the amount of uh, all-cause mortality that is caused by diarrhea. Um, so that's a kind of like indirect way of getting uh, the effect that water treatment has on uh, child mortality. But then um, the evidence that Arthur spoke about came, uh, um, came along and uh, there was a direct estimate. So it, it was basically a direct link between water treatment and uh, the effect on uh, child mortality. And uh, um, the magnitude is like much higher. So it's, uh, it's 10 times as uh, large, 30% reduction. And obviously that was large enough for us to go back uh, and try to understand more about this program. And so we did two things. The, the first step was coming, um, basically putting together our own estimate of the effect that water treatment has on uh, child mortality. Um, so we selected five of the studies that um, Arthur has talked about. Um, partly we, it's because we only focused on programs that um, were using coronation and only coronation as a type of water treatment. Um, partly it's because we only selected uh, programs that had a follow-up of at least one year um, because we thought that larger programs would be less likely to suffer of, uh, publication bias because it's more difficult that they'd go unnoticed. Um, and that led us to an estimate of a 14% reduction. So that was the first step. And then the second step was using this estimate from the literature to come up with an estimate that was specific to the donation opportunity that we were interested in, which was uh, dispensers for safe water and specifically their work in uh, um, Kenya, Uganda and Malawi, um, which is what we were interested in uh, considering for funding. And uh, the way we kind of take that um, figure from the literature and translate it in a figure for a specific context is through a number of adjustments, but for instance, one of them is um, um, diarrhea rates, so those change by context and uh, we want to account for that. So that led us to an estimate of a, um, reduction in child mortality between 6 and 11%, um, depending on context, um, which means that translated in our uh, cost effectiveness estimates um, was about seven times as cost effective as uh, cash transfers across the different countries which was above our bar, and uh, that's what led us to make the, the grant. Um, I also wanna kind of stop and draw attention to the fact that there is a huge difference between the estimates based on the indirect method and the ones based on the direct method. So 3% reduction on one side and six to 30% uh, uh, reduction on the other, um, depending on the, what estimate we're looking at. Um, and this is really surprising. And it's something that uh, we're still kind of trying to wrap our heads around. We, we do have an hypothesis, and the hypothesis is that basically diarrhea doesn't just directly 
cause death, but it does so also indirectly by weakening the children's immune system and making them more susceptible to um, other infectious diseases that are not waterborne, um, such as respiratory diseases. Um, we do have some evidence that this might happen, um, but that evidence is kind of from contexts that are really different and uh, non-experimental, uh, non um, which means that um, it remains one of our open questions exactly what the specific mechanism is and, uh, and what's happening and uh, why water treatment um, is leading to such a large uh, reduction. Another open question we have is about the precise effect size because our estimate is actually, so the one based on uh, five studies is actually not uh, statistically significant at conventional levels. So we are confident that it does have an effect, um, but we are uh, somewhat uncertain about exactly what um, effect, um, the size of that effect. So despite all these uncertainties, we'd, uh, uh, we are excited about water treatment. We are uh, we're extremely excited about the grants we made to dispensers and we are uh, going ahead and considering other water treatment programs. Um, you can read some of them here. Uh, Arthur has already talked about inline coronation. Um, I'll just say that for us, that's very exciting because since the device is kind of like set um, inside the pipes or the tank, um, the people fetching the water don't have to remember to coronate. It, it's automatic and that um, has the potential to really increase coronation rates and therefore uh, the um, effect on uh, child mortality. Um, the other thing that we're doing is uh, just collecting more information to address our open questions. So we are really looking forward to learning uh, from the scale up of uh, dispensers, all sorts of uh, information about um, you know, um, adherence rates and chlorination and the number of people served. Uh, but we're also proactively looking for opportunities to fund um, an impact evaluation on the effect that chlorination has on, uh, on child mortality. Okay, great. So um, I just wanted to take an opportunity to step back and uh, um, kind of think through what uh, this grant and uh, um, like means and what it shows about our work more recently. So um, as you can uh, see, uh, basically we've made a grant and a pretty large grant to dispensers um, despite some uh, considerable remaining uncertainty. Uh, and this is really like, one of the things that we've been uh, um, doing recently, just uh, making grants and being more comfortable with a uh, um, higher level of uncertainty. We're also uh, making grants aimed at learning. So the fact that we are proactively looking for opportunities to fund impact evaluations in this area is an example of that. And we are trying to collaborate with partners to just create new funding opportunities. Inline coronation is an example of that. Um, so we have partnered again with evidence action through this uh, program called the Accelerator, which is effectively an incubator for uh, uh, early stages uh, promising programs. And uh, one of the programs incubated has, um, has been in line coordination. Right, so um, taking yet another step back, um, you know, we, we really hope that we are managing to find enough cost-effective opportunities and to support them. Uh, such that the cost of improving um, 
the life or averting deaths of people living today increases. That said, um, there is still a lot of work to do. Just wanted to echo what um, Tony and Arthur have been saying. There is so much still to do and there are so many opportunities to fund highly cost-effective programs. Um, we are, our goal is to adapt our strategies and so be more comfortable with uncertainty, uh, just uh, focus on creating new evidence in a way that puts us in a better position to really address um, these uh, problems in the medium term. Um, we have a growing team to do that and uh, we are hoping to really um, increase the amount of uh, resources that we direct to these programs. So last year, I think we recommended grants for about 500 million and we are hoping to get to about a billion in 2025. Uh, yeah, and we're just really excited and uh, hope that you'll join us on this journey. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, it's really an honor to be talking to this group in particular about this investment um, and uh, this new journey that we're, we're, we're going on. Um, so I think we've covered that chlorination is an effective way to kill most uh, waterborne pathogens. And um, actually, by the way, I, I don't have slides. I just have photos. So hopefully that helps you like understand the program a little bit better. And um, I, so I'd like to zoom out a little bit and talk about what dispensers for safe water um, is like on the ground and, and practically. Um, so it's you know we've established that chlorination itself is uh, effective, um, and I think you know a lot of what the work that uh, Arthur and uh, Michael Gramer's team has been doing is around like the the seeing that biology. Uh, working in the real world. Um, and so uh, actually measuring that chlorine uh, at, at the household is like fundamentally like where we get to it at, at the end of it all. Um, and so D DSW um, solves a very particular set of engineering and delivery um, issues and it, it, it presents this solution in a very specific way for rural communities to access that chlorine um, at their existing water points. Uh, the dispenser is designed to deliver a, a very precise dose of chlorine to users, and our model uh, includes uh, four key elements to success, human-centric design, community partnership, uh, last-mile service delivery, um, and it's free to use. Um, the, as a result, uh, adoption, uh, dispensers in particular has adoption rates that are over five times uh, many of the other chlorine uh, technologies that we've uh, we've evaluated. Um, throughout this program, um, evidence has been key uh, for the program life cycle and, and over the, the, the course of the program. Uh, even with effective interventions, um, design and operational efficiencies can drive uh, much greater impact. Uh, as with all our programs, we continue testing and innovating throughout the, D the DSW lifetime um, to drive cost effectiveness. Um, so, like, this is a great example. We, uh, we started using full-size delivery trucks and found efficiencies in, in shifting to a network of motor, motorbike uh, deliveries that vastly reduced uh, costs. 
Um, we also shifted from uh, clunky metal dispensers to uh, easier to use and maintain plastic uh, dispensers that, that you see in most of these uh, photos and um, shifted from a model of paid promoters uh, to volunteer community representatives. Um, so all of that is uh, uh, fed by a robust uh, real-time feedback loop of uh, of m and &E indicators and uh, a very robust process. Um, and it, as I mentioned at the beginning, like the, the core uh, number and performance metric that we look at is adoption rate. So that's the collection of a, uh, a random sample of households, uh, the, the actual chlorine uh, test in the, in the household to make sure that that, that water that they're consuming is actually uh, being chlorinated. Um, so our impact today uh, is, uh, you know, we, we, reach, we currently reach 4 million people in uh, rural Kenya, Uganda, and Malawi at a cost of $1.50 uh, per person per year. Um, that's a network of 28,000 dispensers um, and 54,000 community volunteers um, and, uh, and 200 staff. Um, so it is a substantial logistical uh, uh, presence uh, in those uh, in those countries, um, and we are just like incredibly excited about this new investment. Um, so it includes doubling uh, the size our our our, our size uh, to reach uh, over nine million people by the end of 2023. Um, that the expansion will focus on Uganda and Malawi. Uh, while, while extending um, our commitment in Kenya. Um, and it will be a combined total of 24,000 uh, new dispensers uh, in those countries. Um, as you can imagine, that's an enormous logistical undertaking um, and one that we're very excited about uh, and uh, very engaged with now. We've, as, as we've increased uh, confidence in this uh, uh, investment. We have gotten the teams ready, and so we're we're very much on track to start installing uh, dispensers uh, in September uh, as we complete our hiring, our uh, our supply chain work, uh, and our um, uh, engagements with uh, communities. Um, this grant uh, also has a, uh, a a small team uh, dedicated to just finding new countries. Um, so that's in addition to the massive expansion, recognizing that there are capacity constraints on our side to, uh, uh, to, to recognize that we need to uh, dedicate a team just at looking at what the next uh, safe water uh, uh, dispensers program um, could be and, and where could that be outside of Uganda, Malawi, uh, and, and Kenya. Um, and so that's, that's very exciting work that we are uh, taking on now to design those like that, those expansion programs in new countries. Um, and outside of DSW, as, as both Marinella and Arthur have been talking about, um, we think that there's great opportunity for next generation for the, the next set of potential safe water um, products. And like, as they've both been talking about, I think we're very optimistic about inline chlorination um, for, the, for the same reasons that they mentioned. It's, uh, 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 lower maintenance costs and uh, very high adoption because 
um, it, there's, there's no uh, loss of, uh, you know, as people collect water, they, it, it is automatically chlorinated. Um, so we're, 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 we're very excited about that and very excited about it, uh, ILC in particular being an opportunity to, to leverage the DSW platform to reach uh, those communities that are um, nearby DSW communities, but maybe uh, where dispensers are not necessarily the best solution. Um, so yeah, uh, ra wrapping up, um, I did want, I like, especially for this group, I wanted to flag that, you know, GiveWell and Evidence Action often have healthy debates um, about the underlying evidence and, and about, uh, as our methodologies uh, to estimate cost-effectiveness change. Um, we think this is a really amazing example of how a diversity of perspectives can lead to a richer, to richer outcomes. You know, it was quite a few years where uh, GiveWell and Evidence Action were not aligned on our views of uh, DSW. And Evidence Action is always willing to shut down programs um, where we don't see the evidence or the cost effectiveness being as strong as we want. Um, and we've been pretty public about shutting down uh, no lean season a few years ago. And we, you know, frequently exit programs uh, on the, on the investigation side that where we don't think that the, the, the evidence is strong enough. Um, but, but for dispensers, we were really committed. And so uh, we worked really hard to fundraise the $6 million annual budget uh, that was needed for that program. And a huge amount of that money came from effective altruists from this community. Um, and so that really kept the program alive. And there are so many people at Evidence Action and on that program that worked so hard to keep that program going as funding was like very hard to get. Um, and, and that uh, the effective altruism community was critical, absolutely critical to keeping that program going. Um, and that means that when the, the evidence emerged um, and when we could add it all up and create the model, uh, the cost effectiveness model that, 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 that worked, um, there was this existing safe water platform to evaluate um, and, uh, and build on. So both for DSW and for uh, inline chlorination. So that's opening up like not just the 64 million uh, of this investment, but potentially hundreds of millions uh, in potential cost-effective safe water opportunities down the road. Um, so this is just a really awesome example of smaller, more risk-seeking, uh, effective altruists um, catalyzing just incredibly, like incredibly large funds for, for uh, extremely high impact. Um, so for evidence action now, our kind of concern is the rate of um, outside growth. Um, it's hard to find leadership uh, that is as committed to cost effectiveness and evidence as we're looking for. And so we are trying to grow and we need uh, more effective altruists like in the space, uh, both to join evidence action and also to join uh, and engage uh, in the safe water space. Um, uh, we're, yeah, we're just so excited to be joining this, uh, this opportunity. Um, I think, you know, we're trying to provide this message to the effective altruist, altruist community, the WASH community and the global health community that this is a, a really potentially transformative change in how we think about uh, reducing uh, child death globally and 
um, there's a lot of room for, uh, for people to contribute to, to that impact. So thank you. Fantastic. Well, thank you all. I think it's really exciting to have on the one stage these three critically independent but also collaborative voices from both the, the research side, the funding side, and the implementation side. It's just a fantastic case study for how all three sort of perspectives can come together with healthy debate to hopefully drive impactful change. So with that in mind, I'd be really interested in each of your perspectives on how this enabling environment was built and some of the, the blockers or challenges that we see within the global development space in building similar partnerships and how we can try and overcome some of those blockers and challenges. So I might point this question first to, to you, Arthur, but I'd be interested in hearing all of your perspectives. Sure. So starting with the research side, um, you, 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 it might be natural to ask kind of why, you know, why didn't someone do this earlier? Why, why didn't someone put this together earlier, this evidence? Um, and I think one reason is that the data wasn't just kind of lying around. So um, when people are doing randomized controlled trials or you know, any kind of study, they don't, you can't just chuck in all the outcome measures that you might be interested in because um, you know, that would lead to some problems. And so people do multiple hypothesis adjustments if they have extra outcomes. Um, and so when you're running a study, if you think you're not gonna have enough statistical power to look at something like mortality, um, you might just not publish the data on that. You might not include it in your study. Um, so that meant that you know, there were a few studies um, of these 15 that had published mortality data, but the authors um, had to write to the authors of all the others and try and get that mortality data from them. And that was a very long and arduous process. Um, so I think one thing that could help you know, more things like this in future, and you know, one thing that the authors talk about in meta-analysis is perhaps it would be possible um, to develop a norm where um, people in a field will agree on some you know, important but rare outcomes like mortality. Um, and when people are running studies that they should collect data on those outcomes, put it in their pre-analysis plans, but note that they're, you know, they're not gonna be powered to pick up effects on that. And so they're not gonna do multiple hypothesis testing, but they're collecting and publishing that data for possible future meta-analysis. And I think there's probably a lot of areas where a meta-analysis like this could, um, could uncover useful evidence. Yeah, so I think um, something that was really striking here is that there was a large difference between the kind of uh, indirect estimate and the direct estimate. But when we uh, did receive data of a direct estimate and we spoke to experts, they didn't seem to be surprised mm. <laughs> by, by that discrepancy. And um, that really makes me think that uh, it's really hard to just harness that kind of implicit knowledge uh, that experts have. But that would be like a big leverage um, because uh, that's something that can help us identify, you know, what kind of potentially key opportunities are and if more evidence is needed, potentially fund uh, the collection of that evidence. Mm. Yeah, and I think, uh, I think on our side, um, the, the the kind of long-term or organizational uh, values and commitment uh, to the program and our ability to uh, have the flexibility to, to, to make that commitment to the program over the long-term gave uh, the researchers like the breathing room to be able to 
uh, really get their like head around uh, the program and contribute that evidence uh, that was needed. And I, I think like when I think about how other NGOs are uh, able to contribute, it's, it's a bit harder when they're stuck in the kind of standard program life cycle that is only a few years, like four or five years. Um, that's not quite enough for, uh, often not quite enough for like a really healthy um, debate. And so I think Evidence Action's long-term commitment to DSW um, has allowed that to be a consistent um, platform from which that evidence could be kind of interpreted. Maybe to pick up on that, there, there's obviously a close relationship between Evidence Action and GiveWell. There's some, some synergies in philosophy. Is that sort of long view that Evidence Action takes on knowledge generation and implementation, how does that sort of influence GiveWell's ability to support or engage in some of these, these discussions? around evidence generation? Yeah, so, um, I mean, the, um, there's like two levels at which we look at evidence, right? So one is the, um, the literature that um, allows us to estimate effect size of different programs. Um, and then there is uh, program data that allows us to take that kind of like more abstract and general uh, information and really apply it to the specific context. Mm. And that second step is just is crucial, it's helpful to work. Um, and so we really need very solid information on, you know, just to name a few things like um, coordination rates. So uh, how many people within the community actually do use chlorine? Because uh, there's a big difference between having access to a um, chlorine and deciding to use it. Uh, it's a lot to remember for people that have a lot to do already. Um, that's one thing, and then even the number of people uh, um, using the water points uh, that do have chlorine, uh, that is essential for us to do work on the costing side, which is a often a neglected side of the cost-effectiveness analysis. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is just thinking about you know what information we we have and we can use through what uh, evidence action already collects. But I think it's also great to be able to discuss with them whether there is any opportunity to go above and beyond what they already do in a way that could give us more confidence to potentially scale up that work even further. So for us, um, a major source of uncertainty was um, baseline water treatment, because, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, is laughing, um, because obviously, what you get through program data is the number of people coordinating, but what we are interested in is additional number of people coordinating because of the program. Um, and so the number of people who would be coordinating without the program is a key piece of information for us. And so as, like, being able to have that discussion with evidence action was crucial to um, get us the amount of confidence we wanted to keep supporting the program uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think on that, I think that that openness to engage with data and to uh, have like a shared commitment to quality of data is an incredibly uh, important aspect of uh, our relationship where I think we've got that, uh, we have that openness uh, developed over 
you know, a decade mostly of talking about deworming, but uh, like now, but transferred to other other programs as well. Um, and I think that, yeah, that 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 commitment to the like um, the theory of, uh, of of data quality and the theory of um, uh, that being like the core of uh, of how you talk about your program uh, allows that conversation to be, uh, I think, maybe easier than um, uh, you, you might expect. And just to come in on that very quickly, the importance of money, I think you mentioned this, but to drive it home even more, the importance of monitoring data. You know, we've got these randomized controlled trials and you mentioned, you know, it's important to know the baseline rates, you know, but the world is complicated and there's so many more things that we don't know that you could get by going and, you know, getting this, you know, monitoring data. So not just how many people chlorinate, but how regularly they chlorinate. Um, what kind of people chlorinate? Do they chlorinate during, you know, seasons or times which are riskier? Are they more likely to chlorinate when they have young children? Uh, you know, and you can, <laughs> you can go down this rabbit hole and there are just sure. a million things that might affect, not just how effective water treatment is, but where you would want to target it. Mm -hmm. And all of this stuff, you know, there's uncertainty about. Totally. But in those examples, right, if you were to ask someone, do you chlorinate their water? They'll say yes, and so you're like, <laughs> right, but in fact, maybe they're only doing it in certain environments, and you really want to know that, right? And that, that gives you a lot of information about uh, that. That's that's super uh, uh, important to understand for the actual impact. Yeah, and I think just building up on that, the one of the things that was very exciting for us was the fact that evidence action is actually testing the water um, to check for chlorine and if there is a. Um, residual chlorine, so basically enough uh, chlorine to keep chlorinating uh, um, the water even if uh, additional pathogens um, come in. And uh, yeah, that's kind of like objective information that is especially valuable for us. So maybe just to, to, to jump in on this point in particular, um, I'll quote Karen Levy, obviously someone we all really admire a lot. And what she said was that impact is all about execution and delivery. So obviously there's a, a huge value in having a meta-analysis and having the research, but the next step around implementation, delivery on the ground, and, and you were sp all speaking to monitoring and understanding sort of like the process and evaluating the process. I'd be interested, I'll, I'll point to you first, Brett, but, but how do you think about actually collecting some of that m and &E data to really understand what's going on on the ground? I know you spoke a little bit about it before, but would love to go a little deeper to understand the philosophy. Sure. So. Yeah, I, I like I, it's a it's amazing how much time we spend talking about M and E uh, on our side. Also with GiveWell, but like they think that they're asking us too much, too many questions, and we're like, oh no, we talk about this all the time <laughs> internally. Careful, and, you say. Uh, well, yeah, so, okay, it's true, <laughs> but um, but we uh, so we have our we have a Emily delivery team in our countries that are. Uh, that are that are focused on optimizing our, our our data collection and very quickly turning it around um, and 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 looking at it for like um, like month by month changes in um, uh, in all 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 types of potential indicators. So whether it, uh, adoption rate is kind of the mother uh, number that we look at, but there's um, you know there's device functionality, there's like frequency of breakdowns, there's, um, there's all, all, sorts of, all sorts of data like that. Um, and there's also like, we have a call center even that like allows people to call in if the chlorine runs out early or if the device stop, stops working. Um, 
and that that the frequency of that data collection and the usage of it and making sure that we are using it is I think really key. Um, so at the you know at the implementation level, they're looking at that data in their monthly meetings, in their regular meetings to to understand like where can they make changes. Um, so like an example that we frequent, frequently talk about it is in Uganda in like 2015 we saw uh, adoption rates just plummet um, and we, we were like okay everybody like what is going on here and it turned out that there was a rumor that was spreading that chlorination uh, results in male infertility um, and we so we were able to like see that data coming in really quickly and then design uh, you know, engage with our promoter network to like design messages to counteract that like very quickly and then watched it go from 40 to 60, uh, ad the adoption rate go from 40 to 60% like in real time as those interventions were, as those communication changes were coming online. Um, and that, I think, that adoption rate we have found is incredibly variable if you are not paying attention to it. Mm. Um, and so like, it is very easy for those dispensers to fall into disrepair or for people to like stop caring about chlorination um, and really like having a focus on that number and customizing uh, like, you know, every quarter, every month uh, to make sure that you're doing everything you can to drive up that number um, is, is really like a key to that, to the program. Yeah, th thanks for the detail on that. And, and I know Marinella, somewhat jokingly, you were saying how you, know, you, you ask a lot of questions around this, this monitoring pace. In your presentation, you sort of discussed the three filters that, that GiveWell goes through. But I'd like to understand how you think about implementation. Right? It, obviously, it's something that's of interest, given that you're asking all these questions. But how does that get formalized into the process as GiveWell is thinking about where to align or assign resources? Yeah, so um, I guess the funnel I was talking about is, uh, is really a funnel that describes our work at the level of programs. So, um, you know, looking at the literature and trying to narrow down what type of programs from that literature would be promising. Mm -hmm. Once you've done that, you have to look uh, at whether there are already organizations implementing these programs. And, uh, you know, if there aren't, whether there is any space for creating any and supporting that ecosystem and creating that, that capacity. Mm -hmm. um, and so if they exist, then the, the, the kind of following question is, okay, how, um, how excellent are they at delivery? And really the only way we can answer that question is looking at the data that they collect on, uh, on delivery. Yeah. And so that's really a, a huge part <laughs> of, uh, of how we select implementers and it's a huge part of what we'd want to see in uh, implementers that we might help um, develop and uh, um, yeah yeah no, thank, thanks for thanks for explaining that and as is quite clear from from all three of you sort of that common currency for all discussions is the data and the evidence that's at the at the baseline so I'd, I'd be interested in understanding so what is the incentive mechanisms for gathering or, or uncovering the evidence. Um, obviously, from a purely academic perspective, there are certain incentives around knowledge generation. But this is clearly not an academic exercise. There's real people on the ground uh, being affected, um, hopefully in a positive way. So yeah, how, how was that incentive 
mechanism driven in this case and, and what can we learn from that? And I might start by pointing this to, to you, Arthur, but interested in everyone's thoughts. Sure. So I think, you know, I think you can see why this would be neglected by the market. You know, you can't make a lot of money by selling water treatment or and particularly by designing mechanisms to get water treatment delivered for free, you know, more easily. So um, I think early on dispensers received a grant from uh, Development Innovation Ventures at USAID, which is a funder that's kind of intended to address that by identifying innovations that, you know, that have the potential to benefit millions of people. Um, and I think that kind of ecosystem that, you know, those kind of innovation funders can just have huge, huge benefits by, you know, addressing the fact that there are these, these opportunities that the market is leaving behind. So there's also, I'm going to pronounce it poorly, um, fund, um, the FID, I'll, I'll go with FID, the, the, the new French, French yeah. um, uh, the, uh, innovation funder. Um, and, you know, th th there's various other versions of this around the world. And I think that's one, one way of, you know, addressing that lack of incentives. Any thoughts on this? Yeah, so, I mean, I think at the implementation level, um, implementers and charities tend to respond <laughs> to the incentives of funders. And so one thing that we really hope to be able to do is to provide that incentive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so to be the, the people who make it um, the right thing to do even for self-interested reasons for charities to collect excellent uh, data. And uh, hopefully that goes beyond the organizations that we directly work with and uh, just affects a larger set mm -hmm. um, of the sector. Sarah. Well, and to add a little bit, I know I waved off like I'm not sure if I have an answer, but I, I actually, <laughs> like, thinking about it, um, the funding space growing, not just give well, but like the, the set of funders, as I was talking about at the end of my talk, allows organizations to build those values into their like DNA, right? Um, and so uh, being able to generate organizations that have, that are uh, effective altruist, like organi uh, organized in, in terms of their values and approach, mm -hmm. um, is only possible if there's like a donor community that's like reasonably big enough to sustain it. Um, otherwise, it has like it gets pulled in different directions with other donors. Um, so I think now like that 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 once you're there, then you can make those. Then then it's a straight line into commitments uh, to be focused on impact and data. Like that's that's a like a, a straight logical jump. And to categorize that a little bit, you know, it's really important to have the push and the pull. So GiveWell being this pull that says, you know, hey, if you, I mean, GiveWell does push and pull actually, really. <laughs> GiveWell does everything. But GiveWell, you know, a lot of its funding goes to saying, you know, if you develop these things that are the most cost effective, you know, then there's this big pot of money that you can get. And then GiveWell and you know, DIV, FID, others, actually identifying those earlier stage things and giving, I think, you know, you call them incubation grants or call different things in other places that can help organizations get from, you know, the beginning to, that point where they have the evidence. Absolutely. Um, something of a tangential question here, but uh, Marinella, you were discussing sort of cost effectiveness as sort of like that third key filter as you're thinking about programs. Um, how do you think about beneficiary preferences within that cost effectiveness analysis? 
And by that, I mean sort of the actual desires, wants, and needs of the individuals on the ground who will be the recipients of, of the intervention. How is that incorporated into what seems to be a very mechanical, objective process? Yeah, so um, just uh, taking two steps back, um, I think one of the problems or challenges that we face is that when we think about cost effectiveness um, on the benefit side, we really have to compare pretty different type of benefits. Mm. Um, and it's, uh, so there is a lot we have to do to compare the outcomes that we use to estimate benefits. And uh, we broadly put them in two categories. So there would be health benefits and uh, um, economic benefits, so increasing consumption. And for health benefits, then we want to think about uh, morbidity and mortality and how um, the benefit of averting that might change with the age of the person. So they're really like, it's, it's quite a complex set of things yeah. and we need to be able to compare them. Um, and so the way we do this is using effectively a number of strategies and aggregating these uh, strategies. So some of it is using um, guesses from staff, some of it is using guesses from donors, um, some of it is using this kind of um, widespread uh, system that is uh, years of life lost um, that is often used in uh, health research. And some of it is using information that we have about donors' preferences. We don't have information. So donors' preferences? Oh, sorry, or? beneficiary preferences. Right. Sure. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, we don't have information that is specific to each context, um, but we have um, partnered with ID Inside to create um, a survey in, uh, to run a survey in Ghana and uh, uh, Kenya that. Um, basically asked people from low income uh, backgrounds um, that we thought might have similar, um, might live in a similar context to what our, uh, uh, to, to the people that our programs serve. Um, exactly this, so exactly how they would trade off uh, this different type of benefits and uh, yeah. Uh, and then that information has been used to kind of, uh, has been aggregated um, to come up with the um, the trade-offs that we use in our estimate. And the reason we collected that information is that uh, obviously there is a lot we don't know about this context and we definitely do not want to go there and impose our views. Um, and so it was really important for us to try and like do what we could to um, gather that knowledge and incorporate it in our decision-making uh, as much as possible. Great. I know that we're running low on time, so I'll just leave you each with like one rather broad question. So as we speak to the effective altruism community, is there either an opportunity or a learning that you would like to share uh, with the audience, either associated directly with water chlorination or just more generally um, within the work that you're doing? Whomever would like I to start. I can start, yeah. Um, I mean, I think for us, um, you know, this is a, uh, you know, safe water is a new, not, 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 in fact, not at all new, but it is a, uh, a new space for major investment. Um, it's a great opportunity for um, effective altruists to get into the space either by, uh, you know, uh, in 
bringing other actors in or like joining, um, uh, joining existing actors and getting into the safe water space. It's uh, there's a there's major constraints in like capacity to grow in the existing organizations that like the, the speed at which we want to grow is not going to reach like $300 million a year uh, anytime soon. And so there's like a lot of opportunity uh, for, for um, effective altruists to get involved. That's what I'd say. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, I'd echo that and say that it was, um, just to give you like a bit of uh, more context, it was um, really quite surprising to us how uh, a lot of the work that is done um, is done on water, focuses on uh, water infrastructure, but really not so much on the quality of the water. Uh, and that means that there is a huge amount of potential to make progress on that. Um, yeah, so we estimate very roughly only for cost-effective programs, so programs above our bar, 350 million a year for the population that is targeted by dispensers, so like rural population. Um, and that's just running uh, costs without all the setup. Um, so that's, that's huge. And uh, we need a lot of uh, uh, manpower and resources to get that done. Yeah, absolutely. I would echo that and say, you know, not just for delivery, but also for innovation, finding new ways to deliver water treatment. Um, that's one priority for us at the Development Innovation Lab. Um, so I want to give my pitch that, you know, we don't just work on water treatment. We're looking at, you know, identifying, testing, refining and finding pathways to scale for innovations with the potential to benefit millions of people. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of in, th there's a lot of similar opportunities and, you know, water treatment is one huge area of opportunity, but there are others as well. Um, yeah, I think that's a great note to end on. Arthur, Marinella, Brett, thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you.